afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 24th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel or email me or find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help me spread the word about the COVID calls and send suggestions for guests and topics and do please feel free to suggest yourself for a future discussion. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. I hope you will join us tomorrow for the second part of our two-day exploration of COVID-19 in Louisiana. Tomorrow, I'm gonna to be speaking um, more of a New Orleans perspective. We'll be talking about Karen, Gad we'll be talking with Karen Gadbois from The Lens, Andy Horowitz, and Beverly Wright. As of today, there are 2,127,873 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 2,023,663 cases yesterday. 653,825 of those cases are in the United States, up from 614,482 yesterday. There are now a total of 30,998 deaths reported in the United States up from 27,085 yesterday. 569 of those cases are in St. John the Baptist Parish, Louisiana, with 47 reported deaths. Back in the fall, which now seems like much further away than it is, I was part of a group of researchers who traveled to Louisiana from all points around the world to learn about environmental justice struggles, slavery, the realities of environmental justice today there and activism. The trip out from New Orleans through what is often referred to as Cancer Alley is stunning. Even if you've been to heavily industrial places or you live in heavily industrialized places like I do, at one point on that day that we were there, I had the chance to stop and stand on the levee with the Mississippi River to my back. And in front of me was the San Francisco plantation now a tourist stop, beautifully painted, certainly, but also a place of great pain and misery if one takes the time to go beyond the facade and do some research on the history. But surprising to me, something I hadn't expected, that behind the San Francisco plantation is a petrochemical tank farm. You know, the river to your back, the history of slavery in front of you, and petrochemicals behind it. Standing there, for me, history converged. I have family from Louisiana, deep family roots in Louisiana, but none of my families lived there in over a century. I wasn't really prepared for this convergence of history, at least not for the more recent part of it. The river, the sugarcane, slavery, petrochemicals, disasters and legacies stretching over centuries, and now a new danger, the pandemic, COVID-19. I was hoping to bring together some experts who could talk about this layered past and what it means in this moment with the terrifying Louisiana COVID-19 outbreak to deal with. So I'd like to introduce my guests for our discussion today on COVID calls. First, we have Joy Banner. 
Joy Banner, PhD, is the Director of Media and Marketing at Whitney Plantation. She is a native and resident of Wallace, Louisiana, and a descendant of Whitney Plantation. Inspired both by Whitney Plantation's mission and her desire to help her largely descendant community, Joy returned home to advocate for economic and environmental rights. Joy has recently started the first chapter of Coming to the Table, an organization aimed at addressing the legacies of slavery by bringing together descendants of the enslaved and their enslavers. Sophie Kasikov is a freelance reporter based in New Orleans with bylines in The Nation, Huffington Post, The New Republic, Vice, and The Lens. She writes about the climate crisis, housing, urban politics, and planning, and inequality. And she's the author of a recent article that was in Vice that we're going to talk about today. It came out on April 7th, titled Cancer Alley has some of the highest coronavirus death rates in the country. Some of you must have read this article. Our third guest is Ashley Rogers. Ashley is the executive director of Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, a memorial site dedicated to the history of slavery. She is also a doctoral student at Louisiana State University, where she focuses on labor, industrialization, and environmental racism in South Louisiana's Cancer Alley. Joy, Sophie, and Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to invite everyone to get your questions in. Please do send questions in the YouTube live chat function, or you can tweet them to me and just tag at US of disaster. That's a good way to get questions in. So why don't we go ahead and get started. I've been starting these discussions by um, trying to get a situation report of where people are. So Joy, mind if I come to you first and ask you, um, how are things there now where you are? Um, well, I, I'm in St. John the Baptist Parish. Um, I'm a native and, and a resident here and my parents live here and, and um, much of my family still lives right here in, in St. John Parish, um, only a couple of miles away from Whitney Plantation. Um, I was um, disappointed to see that our rates um, of COVID and infection in the parish has gone up. Um, it was 5.59 yesterday, and uh, today it was 6.09. So it seems like it, um, it has taken another jump. I thought maybe we were um, on the way to getting it somewhat under control, but I, I don't know if it um, if people have relaxed because of because they they see evidence of the of it flattening. Um, but yes, I was a little a little disturbed by that. Uh, but we are very vigilant still. We're trying to, to do the best that we can. But it is is difficult when every day you hear of people that are sick. Um, we have several instances where both where people are losing both their mother and their father in the same day or within a couple of days um, of, of each other. So yeah, it, it is, it's very sad and, and it's very surreal that this is happening to St. John the Baptist Parish, right? And we're a small community. And the fact that when you see our numbers and it's St. John the Baptist, you know, and then Brooklyn, um, as far as, as this pandemic, it really is shocking and, and surreal. And I have to admit that every day um, I have to, try to orient myself in this and, and stay grounded so um, I can stay committed to being as aware as possible and, and helping out the community, but it is difficult. Healthcare availability is something we'll talk about today, but just joy to stay with you for a second. 
if somebody um, gets COVID-19 there in St. John the Baptist, can they be treated there or do they have to go somewhere else? So we do have um, a small hospital that is in um, St. John Parish. It's, it's an, um, an auctioner clinic, I think uh, one of the um, emergency type clinics. So yeah, I do think that the cases that I know of, people are being treated either in Baton Rouge or in Jefferson or in New Orleans. Um, so yeah, but they can. We just um, had our first testing center. We have the East Bank and the West Bank of the river. And the first testing center for the West Bank um, was open only as recently as, as last week, I think. So it does feel like we're, we're playing a bit of catch up um, in getting as many people, getting more people tested. Um, and I, I hope that we're not under-recording the number of deaths that are happening in the parish as well. Sophie, let me come to you. I mentioned your article from April 7th, and I just want to mm -hmm. read one little part of it uh, to get some discussion started. This is quoting from your piece. For Mary Hampton, social distancing is the easy part. Her biggest vulnerability during the coronavirus pandemic is beyond her control. The massive petrochemical plant just outside her home in Reserve, Louisiana, that continues to fill the air with an assortment of toxic chemicals. Who is Mary Hampton? How did you get into this story? Take us a little bit inside some of the questions you were asking here. Sure. Um, so Mary Hampton is a resident of, um, you know, the area called Cancer Alley, um, which, you know, is the industrial corridor between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, um, St. John the Baptist parish is part of it, um, St. James Parish, um, right next to it. And um, I have been reporting on Cancer Alley for um, a few months. And, you know, when information about coronavirus started coming out, I really sort of one of the first things that occurred to me was just really the already disastrous public health crisis in these polluted communities in Cancer Alley in so many parts of the country. Um, communities, predominantly African-American communities that have been, um, you know, overwhelmingly filled with toxic plants for so many decades, um, and not even just industrial plants, also disproportionate uh, transportation infrastructure and, and other, um, you know, infrastructure that, that creates um, higher rates of so many of the, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions that we now know are um, tied to higher death rates from coronavirus. Um, so I uh, just wanted to talk with residents, you know, for this piece about, you know, what it's like to live in a community where you know um, that, that you're at high risk um, and where, uh, you know, so much of that uh, risk is just continuing to mount right outside your door. What are some of the stories that you heard? Um, well, I talked with a lot of people, um, you know, about sort of their particular concerns in this moment um, around sort of lack of regulation of these plants um, at the same time as, you know, all sorts of businesses, as we know, are closed, um, you know, people out of work all across the country. Uh, these petrochemical plants are actually some of the only industries that are continuing to um, operate pretty much as normal, if not far more than normal. Um, the EPA, um, amidst the crisis, using the crisis as an excuse, decided to stop enforcing uh, regulations around these plants. So at the same time as, you know, residents of these communities are stuck inside their homes, you know, they're seeing 
the uh, you know smoke you know pouring out of these out of these plants, the smells um, you know filling their communities you know sometimes even more um, than in the past. Um, I also spoke with residents about the challenge of you know organizing these you know a lot of communities uh, in Cancer Alley are extremely active in fighting these plants um, and then calling on the state um, you know to to take action um, to save you know the health of these communities you know what it's like to organize a protest where you have to stay six feet apart um, even as these these plants are operating you know with no adherence to social distancing I'm sure we'll want to talk about this in greater detail but maybe you can give a first answer to this what is the logic of EPA suspending normal air quality regulations in this time? Yeah, so um, I mentioned this in the piece, but there was the, the EPA's decision was precipitated by um, a, a letter, um, I think the week before, from oil um, uh, and gas industry uh, leaders sort of saying that because of staffing issues, they wouldn't be able to enforce they wouldn't be able to uphold, um, you know, their own uh, sort of enforcement um, mechanisms. And this was um, ostensibly the excuse um, that, that the EPA was, was using here. I see. Okay. Let's leave that there for a second, mm -hmm. but we'll come back to it, certainly. Ashley, let me um, come to you. Can you give us a better historical grounding of this of this area. We've been talking a little bit more about the present. Take us back maybe to the deeper history of St. John. Yeah, so, well, that map that's behind Joy right there is a really good, <laughs> I don't know how well you can see it, but that Persac map of the river really gives you an idea of what the history of this area is, which is to say that that exact industrial corridor between Baton Rouge and New Orleans has been an industrial corridor for about 200 years. It's just that it used to be all plantations and they've turned into petrochemical plants. But I really can't emphasize enough how dense of a plantation district St. John and St. James, St. Charles, where will St. Charles split off of St. John, but all of those um, parishes all along the river, it was back to back to back to plantations. Um, and those plantations were um, from right bordering uh, New Orleans up to about Baton Rouge, almost exclusively sugar after about 1800. Um, once you get past Baton Rouge, you start to see cotton plantations along the river. So there's sugar and cotton for a while, and then it transforms mostly to cotton by the time you get to Natchez. Um, so Whitney Plantation is right in the middle of that very dense plantation district. It was a large scale plantation, um, which at the height enslaved about 120 people. Um, and it, it wasn't alone in that, I mean, there were numerous plantations that were enslaving people to that scale, some of which are open to the public today as tourist locations, some of which the owners owned multiple plantations and they were really business investments. And this is, you know, one of the ways where you can kind of see the similarities in the industries. Um, so Homeless House Plantation, which is just a few miles upriver from us, was actually a complex of four plantations called Homus, owned by one man, John Burnside, and enslaved 750 people. So if you think about enslavement as employment, right, these were the massive 
employers, right? It was compulsory, it was forced labor, but these were large scale industries um, rooted in uh, the extraction of human labor, human um, bodies, um, and the extraction on the environment as well. What was the regard for the health of enslaved people to the extent that we know that history, I mean, the, the history of slavery in, in North America takes many, many different faces. I was teaching this afternoon and talking about slavery in Philadelphia in the 18th century. So it it's, takes many different forms. But can you say a little bit more about the nature of enslavement in that part of Louisiana and, and about health? Yeah. So one of the really um, interesting kind of demographic facts that comes out when you look at um, birth and death rates in the United States among enslaved populations is that South Louisiana sugar parishes stand out as being uh, the most deadly district in the nation. Um, and so that's actually tied to sugar. Sugar was a really deadly crop to, um, to produce. So worldwide, the death rate on sugar plantations was exceedingly high. And because in South Louisiana, you have um, this kind of cluster of parishes that are producing sugar, the death rate in those parishes, St. John included, was incredibly high. So um, Michael Tadman is the best uh, historian who's done this kind of demographic work. And um, what he uh, has said in his work is that Whereas, you know, you can look at the cotton districts and um, the tobacco districts and you see a positive birth rate among the enslaved population of positive 20% over a 10 year period. And that same over 10 years, you would see a negative 13% growth in Louisiana, which is to say more people were dying in Louisiana than were being born. Um, partially due to the labor, the nature of the labor tied to sugar, partially due to the disease environment. Um, you know, public health on plantations was uh, quite poor. You know, slave owners had an incentive to try to keep people healthy, but there's only so healthy you can keep people in this environment. Um, and and sugarcane itself, like I said, the, the crop is dangerous, not only in terms of its production, but also the plant itself, which contains silica fibers um, that are kind of like asbestos. So it causes lung, um, complications as well. So there's all kinds of these kind of through threads in terms of public health and, and death. Joy, you're, uh, you have a family connection going back to Whitney Plantation, and you're also now the marketing and media director for Whitney Plantation. So there's legacy there coming all the way up to the present, and you're a person who tells the story of, of Whitney. Do you mind if I ask just what it means to you to, to tell that? To tell that history? Would you mind sharing some of that history with us? Sure. Um, so I'm a descendant um, of, like you said, of Whitney, but I'm in a community of descendants. And like Ashley was saying before, we're in the area that's densely populated with plantations. So um, I can trace my roots back to not only Whitney, but several other plantations in this area that are still open mm -hmm. for touring. And that's not a unique thing. Um, my experience being, you know, being a descendant and being at Whitney, um, first, you know, I, I acknowledge and I, and I feel that even though Whitney, I guess, somewhat stands as a proxy for all, you know, for most African Americans, because most of us, you know, I think 95% um, was the last rate that I looked at, um, we are descended of enslaved people. So 
Um, I consider us all to be descendants, um, but I, I am fortunate, I feel fortunate to work at a, a, at a space in a place where um, we can talk about Black history. Um, the conversation is so much about the Black experience, about the legacies of slavery, um, but it's done so in a place where we don't have to apologize for wanting to know that history. Um, I think that, you know, most Black Americans, they feel um, conflicted. You know, you're, you're proud of your ancestry, even though it's, it's one that is, you know, very brutal and, and very emotional and very difficult. Um, and because of that um, legacy, we're also very proud Americans. I think that's what people don't understand. Our people have given their lives, have, have you know, their blood, their sweat, their tears are literally in the soil. Um, the place that I'm at now, um, on this land, there was a plantation, you know, so like it's literally in the soil. And so that makes us, you know, appreciate our country so much. But at the same time, we know what happened and we want a place where we can, you know, explore both of, um, both of those sides or, or all of those sides. Um, but, you know, like we were talking about before, I thought, I thought it was very interesting. It's so great to hear an outsider's perspective of what it's like to come to this community because your description of a plantation in the front and the plant on the side and the river and the levee um, is something that, you know, kind of astounded you. I'm like, but that's just everyday life, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's one thing about this pandemic. It is making all of us take a step back and realize that the things that we take for granted and we, we think are normal or we get desensitized to it, um, it's great to have, well, great is the wrong word to use, but um, it's an opportune time to realize that, that this is not normal and it has not been normal since slavery times, you know, and how much you can get conditioned into this being a part of living in, you know, Louisiana in the midst of what our marketing, um, our, our local tourism marketing uh, board uh, calls this plantation country. You know, we're New Orleans plantation country and that's what they market and they, and they sell us as. Um, but there are risks, you know, and, and there are consequences to living in plantation country. And, you know, and they are reaching out. They always have reached um, into, you know, what's happening in current times. And this is a big reminder, you know, a, a big SOS, I think, to everyone that we have to get to the root of exactly what's going on. Um, and that's why I think, like, with Ashley's work, what she's doing, you know, and, and connecting that past to what's going on now that's such that was an, such an important gap that has gotten overlooked for so for so long so i'm glad that you know she's she's able to come in and you know to really connect the two the two parts of what's, what has happened well, joy let me follow up with you for a second because you mentioned this uh, uh plantation country as a sort of a like a marketing mm -hmm. um, aspect of of life there in that part of louisiana and for those who haven't been there, you know, you do, as you're driving along the highway, there's signs telling you this exit for a plantation, this exit for plantation, this exit for plantation, mm -hmm. but they're very different in the experiences you have there. Whitney was in the New York Times uh, not too long ago because there was a sort of, uh, um, they were, had interviewed some folks who'd had a different experience than what they maybe had been expecting when they visited a plantation. Can you speak to how the Whitney plantation experience is different from say touring one of the other plantations that are there? Well, so the immediate difference is that, you know, we are dedicated to, to the memory of the enslaved people and the experience of the enslaved people. And I will say that I, I do think, and, and um, 
in, in many cases as a result of, of Whitney and the fact that prior to the pandemic, we had over 100,000 people that embraced this, this our mission and wanting to know that part of the history, that they did start to, start to be more inclusive in their narrative um, and, and focusing more on safe people. But there is still something that is different where we, like I said, we flip the script. So we're coming in from the perspective of, an, of enslaved people. Um, we make sure that people understand that this is an economic system. You know, a plantation is not a house. You know, so um, in the mission, we were very clear. You know, Whitney Plantation, the story of slavery, um, we had to be very intentional of letting people know that this is going to be a different experience than other plantations. Um, so yes, they, you know, they tend to focus more on, on the house or, you know, if they have become more inclusive again of that narrative, it's still very much from the perspective of the owning family, right? And to come to the space of Whitney and only 10 minutes, you know, is spent in the house towards the end of the tour. And before you even get to that house, we take you through, you know, transatlantic, domestic, um, the memorial of people that uh, have, uh, were enslaved in Louisiana, um, we have a memorial dedicated to the children that died during enslavement at some point in the, in the parish. So by the time you even get to the house, hopefully, you know, people have an experience that's rooted in the pain, the brutality, the economics, and the entire system of slavery. Well, I, I mean, I find it kind of astounding that people would expect to go visit a plantation and then be surprised to be confronted with the story of the, of the enslaved. But you're telling us that that's against the grain of the way most of the plantation are presented today. Whitney is not representative in that regard. Uh, no, no. And again, I, I have to um, commend the wonderful job that, that our guides and our interpreters do. Um, and, you know, because they real the word of mouth, you know, for Whitney and its tour. And I, and I really give them, you know, all, I'm a marketing person, but it all goes, goes back to them being able to tell that history. And this is not easy subject matter. You know, this is a, a script that was, you know, written by, you know, the director of research, um, Dr. Ibrahim Asek. Um, I think Ashley had a part, you know, in writing that script as well. And so this is, you know, really, you know, in many cases, academic work. And we have um, member, we have guides and interpreters from here in St. John the Baptist Parish. You know, we have, I think, a, a very diverse staff. Um, across ages, um, across, you know, different, I think, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, I mean, experiences, and the fact that they can come in and, you know, give this and, and give this, um, this tour and do it in a way, you know, that people think that, you know, they are historians, right? Um, so it's just all credit to them that people like now understand that when they come to Whitney, they're getting that experience, um, but it's really not, and it has taken a lot of work um, it's been very controversial, you know, in, in the tourism space. Um, there's been a lot of um, consequences, you know, to us taking a stand that we have. Um, but yeah, I think we, we are, again, holding, we've created a different standard for plantations, I think, to um, have to live up to. So you're listening to COVID calls today, talking about COVID-19 in Cancer Alley, Louisiana. We're talking with Joy Banner, Ashley Rogers, and Sophie Kasakov. Sophie, uh, let me come back to you with this, um, with the story that you wrote and, and you're thinking about, think, how you think about the issues here, because you know, we have these longstanding issues we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. 
violence, going back as far as you want to explore that history. How can the community there signal that they're in a moment of distress when distress just seems to be the everyday life of mm -hmm. people who live at the at the fence line. That seems to me right. a very hard challenge as a reporter, how you sort of tell a story at these different timescales. How did you approach it? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the the work that the community is is doing and has been doing is incredible and speaks for itself in a lot of ways. I think as a reporter, I, you know, don't have to do a lot to to sort of highlight just how incredible, you know, working, doing that organizing work within these conditions is, um, you know, there are community organizations that have, you know, continued to have protests, uh, you know, through Facebook Live, uh, Rise St. James is um, a group that's been opposing the um, construction of a new petrochemical plant, um, Formosa, uh, that, um, you know, is very much still uh, in the works, despite, um, you know, so many other parts of the economy grinding to a halt. Um, concerned citizens of St. John the Baptist is uh, the major group organizing in St. John Parish. Um, so I think there is definitely among these groups, not only a recognition, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, sort of embrace of this history that, that, you know, is documented at the Whitney Plantation and, and exactly how it connects to the extractive economies of these petrochemical plants. Um, you know, I think these organizing groups see these two economies as very much part of the same story um, and are uh, using their, their work to show that um, and to try to build attention around that. Um, why are people there more susceptible to COVID-19? This seems to be one of the really kind of challenging scientific, um, I guess it's been treated yeah. as a question, although it doesn't seem that questionable anymore, but can you go a little right. bit more into your, into the science of this? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, scientific literature and research into the relationship between pollution um, and all sorts of conditions. Um, you know, that are uh, comorbidities related to uh, coronavirus. So heightened rates of asthma in the area. I mean, Cancer Alley, obviously, um, heightened cancer rates uh, is the sort of main health issue that, that uh, you know, people are aware of in the area. But, um, you know, all sorts of other issues related to that are also disproportionately present. Um, hypertension, diabetes, um, and you know, I think in just the past few weeks, actually, the relationship between pollution and uh, coronavirus risk has just become more and more clear. Um, just, you know, I think the day that my story was published, um, you know, there was an article in the New York Times um, with this Harvard, showing this Harvard study um, that showed that people who had been living in high pollution areas are 15% more likely to die from coronavirus. Um, so, you know, I think there's only going to be more research that comes out about this as we're able to, you know, map the death rates of different areas onto the pollution rates. Um, I mean, I think I, there is a concern that lack of testing um, is going to make these links a little bit harder to draw and um, you know, obviously in 
an area like this where a lot of companies uh, have a huge stake in in trying to disprove these connections, it's unfortunate that we're not going to be able to have all of the data, um, you know, to show exactly what these connections are. Um, that was my other question: is the, is the testing situation there as dire as it's been everywhere else in in the United States? Or I mean, similar yeah. kind of pattern there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it was I think, uh, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago that. Um, sort of once the, the rates, I think the, the disproportionate rates in St. John the Baptist um, became clear that the state opened up, I think a couple of additional tests, maybe one additional testing site. Um, and yeah, but I think it's pretty much the, the lack of testing is, is a huge problem for sure. One of the things I was um, astounded, although that shows my naivete, but it's kind of astounded to learn that community members don't tend in general they're not they don't work in the plants or they don't right. work centrally in the in the plants mm -hmm. and that's um so they're sick at the fence line do you have any information about the workers in the in the plants are they also disproportionately suffering from covid i don't know um i do know that the plants are continuing to operate. Um, I was hearing from people, um, you know, who I was talking to, reporting the story, um, you know, that that there weren't social distancing uh, practices in place. But I, you know, I haven't spoken with workers, um, and I'm not, yeah, really able to speak to that so much. But I think there's very little chance that, um, you know, all of these health issues in the community are not also experienced by people who have been working within these plants. Um, I mean, the key difference is that, as you said, most of the people employed in these plants don't live in the communities. So um, it's likely that they're, the workers' exposure has, you know, been uh, much shorter um, you know, time period and, you know, they are able to, to leave at the end of the day. So it's a different exposure for sure. I think there's at least one person that has tested positive in a Dinka plant. I can't recall yeah. um, the data of when that article came out, but there's one so far um, that I know of. Yeah, there were a few, a few cases at, at various plants along the river. So Ashley, there's a miss, missing chapter in what we've been talking about. I mean, the, Whitney Plantation and the history of slavery, and then we have the contemporary moment. But, but what about this? How did the oil industry come to southern Louisiana? How did Whitney Plantation in that region get turned from this intense extraction of, of sugar to everything else that's made there, all these other plastics and chemicals and oil, oil refining? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, so there is oil present. There's a lot of environmental factors that made Louisiana, South Louisiana, really attractive to the petrochemical industry. So oil was discovered here, um, 1906, and that sets it off. But it's not a foregone conclusion that, you know, 100 years later, this is what South Louisiana would look like in this incredibly dense, um, incredibly dense industrial district where, uh, the plants are favored by local politics at the expense of the people, right? So that is the kind of crucial element that I think we can look at 
slavery and the history of business here and understand how that kind of came to pass. Um, so one of the things that made this a very different area to set up refining operations, um, as opposed to say the Northeast, where a lot of these refining operations have been, you know, starting, Standard Oil is the first one who came here, right? And they set up a refinery in 1909. Um, well, when they come here, they're able to buy one single tract of land from one guy because all of this land had been owned by individual plantation owners. And the other thing that's going on with these plantation owners around the turn of the century is that they're not really operating as independent agents. Um, so they're part of an organization uh, that's called the Louisiana Sugar Planters Association, which was um, operating as a cartel for all intents and purposes. So this is a lobbying organization. And what they do is they basically lobby on their behalf to the state government, to the national government, to keep protective tariffs in place because they're trying to prop up their industry by taxing, keeping the taxes on foreign sugars and making sure that sugarcane is given preference over other types of sugar. So there's a few different legacies going on here, right? There's this like really strong advocacy kind of network streaming into the government. There's large scale landowners. And then the majority of the population in these sugar districts are uh, poor African-Americans and whites who are, but mostly African-Americans, right? Who are um, kind of used to very menial labor where they're being kept in quasi-slavery conditions. So it's really sort of a perfect storm when the plants come in, not only can they buy this land, not only is there this environment of these wealthy business owners who already have all of these connections with the government, but there's also a ready labor supply and that ready labor supply um, is kind of going back and forth between the plants and the plantations. They're not, you know, exclusively working at plantations. They're not exclusively working at plants. They're going back and forth um, as market forces um, drive them, right? So, um, so it's kind of a, in some ways, it's sort of a, you know, a frog boiling in the pot. But in other senses, it was just incredibly rapid because you have between 1909, when Standard Oil sets up a refinery, to World War II, we have about 140 petrochemical plants that get developed here in South Louisiana just in that time period. So it's just one right after another. Um, and you would think that perhaps those industries might be in competition with each other, right? If the labor is kind of going around and stuff like that, but that's not really the case. And I have documentation about um, at Whitney that owners of plants and owners of plantations were in communication with one another in terms of their laborers um, because they knew that the laborers were going back and forth. Also, the plantations were able to make use of a lot of those derivatives, especially the fertilizers and the pesticides, which were being sprayed liberally in these um, cane fields as they started to develop scientific farming. So it really was kind of like a symbiotic environment, you know, where the, the new industry just stepped right into the footprint of the old industry. find that so amazing 
and but I want to follow up on this question of health because you were talking about what a, a really I mean within a dangerous system for people who are enslaved at Louisiana was extra dangerous. Mm-hmm. Is that when does it become evident that the new petrochemical industry is also going to be dangerous to bodies to people who are who are working there? Yeah, that's such is that a... so clear early on or. I think so. I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, that's a that's a question that I would love to answer because it kind of makes a difference, right? Like, um, you know, at Whitney Plantation and some of the other plantations, um, you know, I've done oral histories with people and I know that one of the practices that was in place at Whitney, but I've also heard it at other plantations, was that they sprayed pesticides on top of the workers in the fields. So the fields, the, the workers are standing in the fields marking the boundaries of the property line so that the pesticide planes can fly right overhead and spray. And, you know, they're not given any kind of protective gear or anything like that. Um, it makes a difference, right? If people know that those chemicals are cancer causing or if they're not aware of it. Um, and the kind of consensus among people who worked at the plantation both on the management side and on the field side, is that people didn't really understand that connection. Somebody understood that connection, but on the ground, in terms of the people applying it, the people who were actually breathing it in, I think that that was something that people learned slower over time. Um, so I don't know. It's you know one of the funnier things that I found in the archives is uh, you know in the the one of the petrochemical companies in Baton Rouge their company newsletter had a whole page dedicated to um, employees catching fish in the bayous. You know, at the same time that they are actively pumping (laughs) this waste into the water streams. Three-eyed fish. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's, I mean, and that's the other interesting thing. Not for eating, just for sport. (laughs) Right. I mean, this this is the tension here in Louisiana that makes this even more insidious in a way, is that the people here are so reliant on the environment, so reliant on... Um, the water sources as a food source, as, you know, um, and a recreation source, and yet have, you know, been party to and, and had to endure this pollution of that way of life. Joy, I know that you're involved in this cafe that, yeah. um, and can you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, it sounds like part of what you're, the FIFO Lay Cafe, it seems like part of what you're invested in there is facilitating dialogue to try to talk about difficult pasts. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to hear a little bit about that, but I'd also like to hear about how you think COVID-19 is gonna affect that. Obviously people can't mm-hmm. physically be present in the cafe. Are you still able to facilitate any of those discussions? And when we go back to normal, whatever normal is, will this just add another layer of of distrust and and concern on there or what do you what do you see those conversations like after after this moment um well and first i I do want to say that both of my parents have retired from plants um from petrochemical um and so and then i have a brother who's also in in petrochemical as well in oil and it's such a strange relationship that we have with the with the plants because um, as I was a young child growing up, you know, everyone talked about having those good plant jobs, you know, and my parents were one of those people that had a good plant job. And, and my dad, when 
um, my oldest brother graduated from, from college, he got him an internship from right away. So my brother has literally been working um, at his organization for the last, I think, 30 plus years. And, and you know, he has, you know, climbed the ladder there. And so there is so much positive association that we had with the plants in some respect. I personally never wanted to work at a plant. Um, I, I know of instances, my parents tell me of people that they worked with that, you know, were exposed to a chemical and, and died instantly. Um, I have um, a, a relative of mine that was um, there when the plant exploded and lost his eyesight. You know, so we know some pretty, you know, uh, horrific stories of incidents that happened in the plant. Um, and then also, you know, we wonder about the impact that it has on their health. And then um, again, you know, walk on the levee and you were in the West Bank. And so thankfully we, we were not um, as industrialized um, as the East Bank of the river. But as soon as you walk on the levee, you instantly can see how much industry um, is, is literally in the river because there's barges, you know, up and down transporting uh, goods and also, I guess, transporting, you know, some chemicals, I'm not sure. Um, but then immediately across from us is, is a big chemical plant. Um, but as far as, as this cafe, which in a sense, you know, also is kind of a legacy of, of you know, my, my parents being able, you know, to help um, purchase this land that the cafe is on and um, help us with the, the cafe. So even, you know, that has um, an ancestry or a history connected to the plants, which is, you know, again, it's very, uh, it's, it's very difficult to kind of like wrap your head around it. Mm -hmm. But I hope the reason why this cafe and, and um, I, I promoted not so much for the promotion of this cafe, but like I said before, we're in the middle of plantation country. And I think it's so important that um, descendants have a piece of the economic pie that plantation tourism brings in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for many years, I've, I'm gonna say many, I guess two or three years since I've been back, I literally was at our economic development meetings I was at our tourist commission, uh, tourism commission meeting saying, why doesn't someone, you know, open up a cafe? You know, this would be great for someone who may not have, you know, a, a ton of, may not have as much education, you know, for as, as you know, would require for a, a more professional job. Um, but, you know, they may have some resources. Why don't we, how can we support people um, to have businesses in this community? And it was such a battle, the idea of, the money and the attention not being centralized at the plantations, but spreading it, you know, across mm. the community. Um, and so um, my sister and I, she's in, my sister's in tourism. And after um, she left her job, she was like, we need to make a model to show that, you know, we are descendants. Uh, we are proud of our ancestry and we want to have a voice and also be part of business ownership. Um, I don't know what the future holds for us. Um, mm -hmm. The good part about it is that is that the business doesn't have you know any debt. Um, things because in a large part because of family support and the family ties that we have. Um, so I hope that we can create more of a virtual experience. And the good thing about this too is that we have a lot of our um, ancestry folklore legends um, that we would sit around in the evening time and, and listen to my grandmother and her brothers and sisters talk about life along the river. Um, so we wanted to put together a, a book mostly devoted to her. Mm. Uh, but so like, net, I guess we've been pushed into maybe making that book and, and, and making more merchandise sooner rather than later. Sounds like we need to do a whole COVID calls from the cafe <laughs> for people who want to, people who want to participate and have that experience. Um, 
you know, I mean, first, even on a, on a non-COVID day, there'd be a lot of people who'd like to know more about that who can't get there. Oh, we'd love to. Yeah, so um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, let me, um, Sophie, I wanted to ask you just to come back to this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in some ways, all of what the three of you are all talking about is activism. It, it, it's bringing up history that maybe the plants or the politicians, the mainstream media has not paid enough attention to, or our history you know, has not paid enough attention to. When you talked about the activists that you interviewed there, you talked about RISE, you talked about concerned citizens. I know Louisiana Emergency, uh, Louisiana Environmental Action Network is there. Do you have some hope in this moment that with the eyes of the country, I mean, it may not have been what we hoped that it would take a pandemic to get people to pay attention to this community, but they are now. Mm-hmm. Is the activist community organized and ready to jump into this moment and push out the information that they need to, to get this back on to the environmental justice agenda? Yeah, I mean, these communities have been extremely active and I think have been successful, not just during the pandemic, but for you know years in, in gaining uh, you know media attention, gaining attention across the country. Um, I think, the shift from gaining that attention, um, making people aware of the issue to, you know, state policy changing around these plants. Um, I don't know exactly how that part is going to happen. Um, I think I, I feel much more optimistic about, you know, Cancer Alley becoming something of a household name than I do, honestly, of uh, you know, policy towards these industries changing. Um, I think there is such a dependence and such a sort of, um, you know, as we've been discussing, sort of uh, uh, sense of reliance, um, you know, sort of economically on these plants um, that it's, I'm not sure. Let me get a question here. I've got a question here from Kim Fortune and um, Ashley, let me put this to you, but it, this is for anybody. Um, Kim is asking, what economic effects of COVID-19 have you observed locally? And she wants to know uh, specifically, have the chemical companies stepped forward in any way? Uh, I don't know if the chemical companies have stepped forward. Maybe they have, um, but this is impacting. I mean, I can speak to Whitney because yeah, see there I am in charge of the budget, but um, this is quite bad for us. Uh, so Whitney Plantation is a nonprofit, private nonprofit. Um, we are uh, unusual in the museum world in that we're funded entirely by earned revenue. Um, we're famous for having a very wealthy founder, but and I think people imagine that he's bankrolling it or that he bankrolled it, but um, that's not the case. So our operating funds come entirely from the money that people spend on tickets and in the gift shop. Uh, March, April, and May represent our biggest months of the year. Uh, We will be closed, obviously, for all of April, and I fully expect for all of May. We've been closed since March 17th. Um, So this is a loss of, um, just in terms of that closure, over 30% of our annual revenue. Um, And so, 
it's hard to tell what it's going to look like long term. Uh, I'm I'm expecting a reduction in my projections up to 40 or 50 percent for the remainder of the year. Um, so this is going to be a loss of well over a million dollars for us. Um, so it's really, really difficult to keep the museum running, you know, keep our entire staff on the payroll, which we have done right now and, and plan to do for the foreseeable future. Um, it's really difficult to do that with no money coming in whatsoever. Um, and so we're just sort of in a holding pattern as I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how long this is going to last. Uh, when we do come out of it, what it's going to look like. 85% of our visitors come from more than 160 miles away. Um, so that's not a very sustainable place considering that this is killing tourism. Um, so Joy and I have been kind of like tentatively thinking about what this means. You know, we were already wanting to market locally, get more um, New Orleans, Baton Rouge folks in. So um, I'm going to try to stay positive and think about this as an opportunity to get that local, um, get the local traffic a little bit more. But yeah. What about oh, some of- just add to, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, please um, go ahead. But as soon as this happened, you know, Ashley is very, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but she's very new as the executive director, even though she's been there since um, Whitney, even before it opened five years ago. But as soon as this happened, Ashley, the first thing that she did was communicated to the staff that, you know, her priority was making sure that everyone, you know, was as secure as they can be in, in their employment. So I think that went along with when everything was up in the air. And, and I know we have a long way to go. But she stepped in and assured people right from the instant, right from the beginning, that they were the priority. So I, I know it was very difficult for her to go through this, but you know, being on a receiving end of that is very appreciative. Um, and I just wanted to say too, like with Whitney and how special this place are, and in, in terms of economics, Whitney is the reason why me and my sister are able to have this cafe. Mm -hmm. um, this is a town, my hometown, six hundred people. And because of Whitney, 100,000 people were coming here. You know, we have people from all over the world. So when we talk about plantations, you know, it means so much as, as a descendant to have a plantation with that history, um, but able to generate something that has a positive outflow to the community. So um, I'm hopeful that because of the mission and because, you know, of someone like Ashley so dedicated, you know, to getting us back on our feet, um, I know it's going to be hard, but I'm, I'm more positive than ever that we're going to come back stronger. And then I think we're going to come back with a, with a bigger and, and louder voice. So um, I'm, I'm remaining hopeful. That optimism and hopefulness is, is appreciated and very well noted. And um, it also underlines a key point that even though in terms of the economy of the region, it seems, you know, the petrochemical plants get all the attention, but they're it's a very diverse economy in many different ways. So it's not just the, and the plants are, are roaring, but that doesn't mean that all of the other, that there might be a lot of economic pain for other um, businesses in the area. I wanted to ask something um, connected with that. I was surprised to find that many of the plantations in that region are um, sites where there are weddings and events. So they derive a lot of their revenue from that, but Whitney doesn't do that, right? No. <laughs> no. 
take it away, Ashley. <laughs> You're not in the, so, so presumably then for some of these other plantation heritage sites, they will move these weddings to the fall and they will weather this economic storm, but you don't have that because of ideological decision that you've made. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I don't, I mean, and so, uh, no, I don't, we don't do weddings. That's like, there's a whole plantation wedding like industry that we do not participate in. Um, there have been people in the past who have approached us about getting married and they wanted Whitney Plantation to be a part of the story of their wedding. That was really significant to them. Um, and I'm open to that. Like we've had, you know, Joy has worked with a couple too wow. to do um, engagement photos that were really beautiful. Um, it was an African-American couple and they did their photos at um, behind the slave cabin. It was important to them to highlight the fact that their enslaved ancestors couldn't legally marry. Um, and so, you know, there's like this tiny little caveat, but there, but that is almost, that is 0.000001% of the wedding industry in terms of the plantations. That's not what plantation weddings typically are. They are a big, you know, gala in front of the house. Gone, and gone with the wind. And yeah. Uh, no, yeah, like I said, I mean, we, we really, <laughs> literally the only money coming in is tickets and books that I sell in the gift shop. So, uh, you know, our ticket price is kind of high. It's because that's the only money I make. Um, so it's, it's going to be like fine. Um, and I, and I, it, to be honest, I doubt that some of those things that are moved to the fall are going to survive and exist. Um, you know, the mayor has just said yesterday that it's not official yet, but she doesn't expect any more large, um, conferences or festivals for the rest of 2020. Um, Essence Fest is canceled. So even the ones that are being postponed are being canceled. So I think that's still, you know, for some of those folks that do rely on some of that um, event revenue, that that's very much not solid. When I talk tomorrow uh, with um, Karen and with uh, Andy and with Bev, one of the questions I'll have for them will be about Mardi Gras and about the um, billion dollars that Mardi Gras drives into New Orleans and the decision that was apparently made to sort of put that on one side and health impacts on the other and, and go with it. Um, there's gonna be a lot of, of uh, soul searching about that one, I think. We're moving towards the end of, of our discussion. You can still get a question in uh, for my guests today on COVID calls and um, just a couple of quick questions as we, as we wrap up. Um, Sophie, I'm sure you didn't get to, to interview everyone you wanted to or to cover all the issues you wanted to in that piece. Mm -hmm. um, what are you reporting on next? Can you stay on this line of reporting? Uh, I think it seems really vital. I mean, this story seems to really struck a nerve for people, even some who'd never heard of Cancer Alley before. I've mm -hmm. seen it circulating. What's right. next? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton more reporting to do um, about all of the different uh, you know, fence line communities that are going to be hit really hard. Um, I think, you know, we've seen uh, the numbers come out of the disproportionate uh, impact of um, coronavirus um, in African American communities in Louisiana. Um, you know, the first numbers that came out, I haven't checked recently, were 70% of the deaths um, were African Americans, despite uh, making up 32% of the population um, of Louisiana. 
So I think um, there's a ton more reporting to do, um, you know, in Cancer Alley, in other parts of the country, to sort of make those connections between, you know, the, the environmental harms um, and these comorbidities. Um, I think it's a really, it's a really important uh, connection to sort of also counter something that I'm seeing this sort of harmful blaming, um, you know, blaming uh, diet, um, you know, things like this. Um, and I think there's a huge amount um, of, you know, necessary reporting to, to do to sort of, you know, throw a wrench in, in some of those arguments. Well, I want to let everybody know that um, I'm hoping in the not too distant future, we'll have a similar conversation to this about Port Arthur, Texas and Beaumont, Texas, another uh, community that's um, been hit hard by disaster. It's been hit hard by the petrochemical industry. It doesn't have the slavery history that you have there in Cancer Alley, but it does have a long uh, Jim Crow history and a history of racial violence there. And we're gonna talk with John Beard, who's a community organizer in Port Arthur and um, with reporters from the Beaumont Enterprise um, including Caitlin Bain. So um, these conversations are just, I think, really crucial to have in this time, not only because of the incidences of COVID-19, but also what that opens up in terms of this longer historical arc. So I'll just put the last um, question, uh, Joy and Ashley, to you, uh, just in terms of, you know, you know, the long history of the communities there. How is this chapter going to fit in? I mean, it seems to me there's one way to look at this is just repeating these old patterns of violence. Is there a way out of that? Or do you see something in this which gives us hope or a clue to activism or some coping? What, what should we take away from this, this COVID-19 story as it connects to the deeper history? Maybe, um, Ashley, you want to take that first and then Joy? Um, sure. I mean, I, I don't have anything hopeful to say. <laughs> Oh. Somehow I figured you didn't, <laughs> but I mean that in the best way possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I do think that it, it is, you know, when I found out that St. John Parish was experiencing uh, some of the highest rates of death anywhere in the world, that was no surprise to me, given the long history here. Um, but I'll say something else that I haven't said on this, the thing that I'm very concerned about, not only in St. John Parish, but also throughout Lower Louisiana, is that, um, you know, as we mentioned, the death rate for, it, among people in Louisiana is extraordinarily high for African-Americans. 70% of the deaths are African-American. And knowing that disproportionately, um, older folks are hit by this disease, um, you know, I, I've mentioned that I've done oral histories with people who lived and work on the plantation. There's still a lot of living former cane workers in Louisiana. Um, I'm really, really worried about the loss of that history. Um, and I'm, I'm worried about the loss of the culture bearers here in Louisiana. Um, you know, it's been in the news that several members, higher ups in Zulu have died. Um, and so, it's not just St. John Parish, it is St. John Parish, but it's, you know, throughout Louisiana, we have this incredible culture that is rooted in African history. And it is these elderly African-American folks who have lived through uh, 
you know, Jim Crow here in Louisiana and know so much and carry on so much. And um, I've been worried for a long time that they're going to die without us talking to them. And now I'm especially worried that that's going to happen. Joy, your reaction? Well, um, as, as depressing as it, as it sounds, that it, it seems like the same old, same old, um, and, and like what next, um, what now? At the, it, it's also because of our history and, and it's our legacy that I think gives us a strength that I believe, you know, we'll, we'll get through this. You know, we'll get through, it'll be hard. Um, this is a very strong faith community. You know, and we rely on that faith, you know, and, and I think that the, the combination um, talking about, you know, our African, you know, culture, you know, that I'm so grateful for that spiritual groundwork, you know, that I think still flows through this area. I, I feel it. Um, and so I know that it'll be hard, but we will get through it. We've gotten through a lot of, of difficulties before and we'll, we'll get through it again. Um, and I think that what the, the best part about this, you know, with Louisiana, with its politics, with its race dynamics, with, you know, its intersection of class and, you know, the way that that religion, you know, Catholicism kind of intersects across race and all our politicians. Um, we have a lot of I think they're predominantly black leadership in St. John Parish, but I think that all of like those complex relationships makes it difficult them to move to make to make uh, it's it's a scary situation they're trying to you know negotiate between white voters and black voters and so in many cases it feels like at least from someone who lives in this community that they get paralyzed by all of these different things intersecting um so i think they needed something to push them into being a bit more brave and taking on the issues of of the a community that's in most need, which because of this virus, you know, um, is, you know, the African-American community. Um, and, it's, and it's the wonderful work that Sophie is doing. You know, I encourage her to please continue doing work on Cancer Alley because as someone that is living here, this is so important to have your voice and to have that mm -hmm. attention. Um, policies and decisions are being make, made every day. And the article that comes out, you know, the night before that same morning will make the difference between how a council will vote, you know, or how a, a political subdivision will vote on things. So we appreciate, you know, you doing that work. We understand how hard it is, but we hope that you continue to do it and we will we support you in um, any further work that you continue to do. Joy so Banner and Sophie Kasakove and Ashley Rogers, uh, thank you for all the work you're doing and for sharing this knowledge and uh, for spending an hour with us on on COVID calls and, and it sounds like we're going to need a follow-up at some point maybe a little bit later to check in with you and see how everything is going. would like to remind everybody that we are on every weekday at 5 p.m. and you can also listen later on YouTube Live or also on SoundCloud and please come back tomorrow to talk about New Orleans with Bev Wright and Andy Horwitz and Karen Gedwa. Everybody stay healthy. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you everyone.